Uh, I would like to continue uh, speaking about uh, the the contribution or the interaction of uh, Esav, Edom, and uh, and Jews. You know, and all of this emerges from what I spoke about before, the relationship between Yaakov and Esav. But I want to go now much more into today, you know, what's happening today and that really originated from the beginning by Yaakov and Esav. <laughs> we know so far some very important ideas. And really these ideas are what's called the uh, principles of what guides uh, uh, world history, certainly Jewish history. And that's that last prophecy that Rivko heard from the Yeshiva of Shembeever as regards to what was happening inside her with two children, Yaakov and Esav. Uh, and, of course, they said that, you know, we know that there are two great nations from within you, and one will always be greater than the other. But ultimately, the end of all of this is Rav Yavoyt which I mentioned, and what is especially interesting is that the older will serve the younger in one of two forms, but the older will serve the younger, which tells us that the meaning of the older, which is Asaph, that the meaning of his behavior and his descendants is all to service Yaakov in terms of advancing the Tikkun, which is very, really very interesting. It's just two different forms, even though there are different forms. So it's either Rav Yavoid Tzoyer, which means that the older will serve the younger, right? That means Esau and his descendants will serve Esau, uh, will serve Yaakov in terms of the Tikkun process and bring in the redemption. But then the Medrash says, because Yavoid in the Torah has no Nikudot, it has no punctuation, right? So you could read Rav Ya'aved, and the older will persecute, so the younger. So what that means is that if the, they will also serve the younger, which is Yaakov and his descendants, but not in the form of assisting them in a good way, but in assisting them in terms of giving them punishment, I should say retribution, Right? If that's what they need because they sin. That's a very important concept. In other words, the bulk of the punishment that Yaakov and his descendants will receive if they sin, which means they get out of line, will be that Asa will be the cop. Or I should say, Asa will be the judge, uh, the jury, and the executioner, so to speak. Now I will show you that has had, obviously terrible repercussions and I'm going to show you a statistic which is staggering to see the amount of contribution that Esau and his descendants has done to provide retribution and therefore satisfy justice to the Jewish people now if we take a look therefore let's take a look at the history of Esau. 
Now, we know, I mean, this was a long time ago, obviously, Yaakov and Esav. This must have been something like probably 1600 BCE. BCE means before the Common Era. So it's 1,600 uh, years before the, uh, the, the calendar the, begins. In any case, now as time went on, so the Jews were subjective, obviously, to many different nations we know. And the real Golos, if you want to look at it that way, obviously began at the destruction of the First Temple. Right, which was approximately, I mean, there's a there's a difference in dates between the English historians and the Jewish tradition. You know, I mean, in Judaism, the first place to make this was probably destroyed, let's say, in 420 BCE, whereas the English has 586. That's a substantial difference. But whatever it was, is within that 150 year time period. And the base of Magnus was destroyed. Now, what is very interesting is to note why it was destroyed and what the aftermath was, especially in terms of Asaph. Now, you may say, wait a minute, there was no Asaph. You know, who is Asaph? Let's take a look at that, right? We know that Asaph, the Torah says Asaph became Edoim. Right, Asa was called Edom, but he gave rise to a nation, the Edomites, Edom. We know that. Uh, and they were a nation that lived in the south of Israel. It was sort of like the Negev uh, area of, of Israel. You know. And then uh, Edom, the Torah says, Asa zu Edom. Okay. Now, who is Edom? So the Gemara says that Edom Zuroimi. Edom is Rome. So the Gemara clearly identifies Edom as obviously being Rome. And Rome, we know, when did it rise to power? Rome became a republic, which means it rose to power in 525 BCE, which is approximately the time of the destruction of the first Besamekdash. That's a very important idea, because one could ask, well, what's the relationship between Rome right, and Edom? Because the Edomites were who? They were a nation in the south of Israel, right? Whereas Rome, Rome is a nation in Italy. Now, Israel from Italy is quite a distance. So how does one come to the other? Well, what seems to be happening is that uh, Italy which was basically a bunch of provinces. It wasn't what you have now where the whole Italian peninsula is really one nation. But in those days, you had different, you know, uh, sort of like different countries or principalities, you know. Now, there was a nation that conquered Italy. They were called the Etruscans. Now, they, the, the Etruscan had a whole civilization, and they have artifacts from that civilization. The problem is historians don't really know who they were and where they came from. But it is imagined, this is what they think, that the Etruscans, which captured Italy from, I think, 800 BCE till, uh, uh, till 
525 BCE, the Etruscans, they say, was a country or nation that came from the Middle East. That's what they say. Although they don't know where. So it seems, therefore, that the Etruscans might well have been Edom. In other words, somehow, the nation of Edom traveled to Italy, and they took over the Italian peninsula, you see. And therefore, Italy, uh, what he called, became Edom, you see. Now, what was interesting is that around that time, which I mentioned the destruction of the first temple, of the first place of Migdash, right, Rome threw off the yoke of the Etruscans in approximately 525 BCE, and they declared themselves to be a separate nation from the Etruscans. In other words, Rome became a republic, which is very interesting, you see. <clears throat> so therefore, the beginnings of Rome, as far as Jews are concerned, is approximately when the Romans overthrew the yoke of Etruscans, which seems to be that they were the Edomites, the original Edomites. In any case, the question then is, you know, uh, what is the relationship between the fact that the first place I made this was destroyed and all of a sudden out comes Rome, which is really Edom, which is really Asaph. And I'm going to point out a very important principle. In fact, it is the secret of anti-Semitism. In fact, not only that, but it's also the remedy to anti-Semitism. It's a very fascinating idea. What does that mean? <clears throat> well, the reason why the first place of Migdis was destroyed, right, was because the Jewish people, the Zikamar and Yoimah, says that they transgressed the three sins that you are asked to give your life rather than transgress. What is that? That's Gileorais, adultery, Shrikas Domim, murder, and Avetisora, idol worship. If you are asked to uh, do, do uh, these Averis, then that's called the Gimel Averis Chamurois, the three cardinal sins. Then you are asked what's called Yehorik Vayavo, rather give it your life than transgress these sins. But you'll notice something that there's a common denominator with these sins, especially the first two, adultery and murder. They involve a tremendous amount of sinner or hatred, you see. Because adultery is not merely a sin of pleasure. It's a sin of a complete disregard of your fellow Jew to the extent that you will avail yourself of his wife. That's a tremendous amount of sin or complete disregard and disrespect of your fellow Jew. And obviously murder is the same thing. Therefore we see that the major sin in the first place of Migdash, even though the Chazal don't tell us directly, you know, sin as basis hatred, there's no question that those sins involve a tremendous amount of baseless hatred, which is very important. And now we begin to understand a very fundamental principle. Esau, after everything that happened, 
You know, we know Yaakov took the blessings. Esav hated Yaakov. The Torah says that. And Esav hated Yaakov because he had, according to him, stolen his brachas. Right? So he hated him. That is the beginning, if you really think about that, of Sinat Chinam. That Esav hates Yaakov. You see? And therefore, what the Rav does is very interesting. If the Jews are guilty of sinas chinam, baseless hatred, was well, it not only there's a tremendous hatred, but there's a tremendous amount of disrespect of one Jew to another, then God judges the Jews based on mida keneged mida, measure for measure. What does measure for measure mean? Because that's true justice. You know, what you do is what happens to you in the exact opposite. That's measure for measure. This is the true application of justice. So God says, because you hate each other, when the Jews have sinas chinam, when the Jews hate each other, you know, or disrespect each other, and so on, then God says, if a Jew hates a Jew, then I will bring his original brother, and I will awaken his hatred, which is Esau, of course, and allow Esau to harm the Jews through that hatred. You see how the Mida connected Mida works, measure for measure. In other words, what I'm saying is a very important principle, you saw it, that measure for measure brings out tremendous anti-Semitism among Esau. Just like you want to hate your brother, I will allow your brother, Esau, the original brother, and Esau is really, as I said, is still our brother in that sense. He will hate you, and he will have the opportunity to destroy you, measure for measure, which is really fascinating. That's why, when the first base of Midnish was destroyed, because of Sinas Chinam, even though the immediate reason was the three cardinal sins, right? As a result of that, the Jews merited, actually you hate to use the word merited, but they were visited with tremendous hatred by somebody that used to be a fellow Jew. And therefore that's the origin of Rome hating the Jews. See, that's where we begin to see. And we will see that this has been uh, what he called uh, common or repeated all the time through history. So this is the concept of Esau, right, or Rome, becoming a nation in 525 BCE, as basically at the same time as the Beis Hamikdash being destroyed. So uh, because of, of the sinas uh, chinam, those three sins. So this is the beginning, right, of the awakening of Esau as in the form not of Edom, well, in the form of Edom and Etruscans, and certainly in the form of Rome, Rome because they became the, uh, a, na- a nation at that time. So this is really the origin of Rabia Aved Tzoyer, that the older will uh, uh, punish or persecute the younger in order to do what? In order as a kapora, an atonement for Yaakov and his descendants, because they're the ones that are assigned that task to be the primary agent 
of retribution and atonement for the Jewish people. It's a very important idea, uh, this whole concept of the relationship between Esau's job and that it initiates when the Jews are guilty of a national travesty called the, the three averis, three sins, uh, which basically is sinas chinam. Now I want to point out, before I even go further, that the major way that Jews fall into this characteristic is Russian horror. Believe it or not, why does a person hate another person? You know, there are many times that people hate people and they don't even know who they are or they have no interaction with them. But we always communicate with each other, always. That's the most frequent act that people do, it's communication. So probably 90% of all sinas chinam is generated because of Lashon Hara. That's a very important concept in terms of bringing Mashiach, which I will speak about. Now, this is the origin of Rav Ya'avet Soir, the older will persecute the younger, and how it actually begins at the time that Jews are involved in a terrible way with Sinat Chinam, basis hatred. And I'm pointing out the beginning of that persecution and the relationship between the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash and uh, the whole concept of Sinat Chinam. So that's number one. Okay. And now, we really see it with the destruction of the second Beis Hamikdash. In other words, if you were not sure what's going on, with the Romans in the first place, Hamigdash, when they became a republic, then you got to hear this. Now, Chazal tells us openly, right, that the second base Hamigdash, which occurred in approximately 70 CE, CE meaning common era, right, that the destruction happened, why? By Rome, which we know, because of Sinas Chinam. Chazal say, it's Sinas Chinam. You know, that the Jews tremendously disliked Jews. Now, what's the extent of the hatred? I don't know. We don't really know. But it was enough to destroy the second base Semikdash. Now, what do we know about this? <laughs> we know this. The formula. That when Chazal, when the Christ will hate one another, Sinas Chinam, so the repercussions is where God says, you guys hate each other? Then I will get your brother, originally brother, and in many ways he still is our brother, right? They will, I will arouse their hatred or remind them of their hatred and give them the opportunity for them to destroy you. And lo and behold, what happens? Asa becomes Christian. I mean, what is Christianity, if you really, if you really think about it? <clears throat> Christianity is not merely a religion. It is really Esau incarnate. Let me show you how. Okay. What is unusual about Christianity is the following. Most religions, or almost all religions in, those, in that, those days, which of course is paganism, right? <coughs> Paganism itself, okay, 
uh, has certain characteristics, that becomes paganism, you see. Uh, It's very interesting just to briefly describe that because Christianity changed it because that was their job, which I mentioned two weeks ago. But Christianity says the following. It's a very interesting summary. Christianity believes, one, that God changed, replaced the Jewish people for the Goyim, for the non-Jewish people, which, of course, are the Christians. They became Christians. So that's replacement theology. In other words, they are the base Israel, not us. The second major shift that they believe, right, is that they have the Messiah, not us. Their Messiah, Yeshu, that's what they believe. They actually believe much worse than that, that he is a god, whether it be a, a demigod or a son of God. Whatever way, he's a divine being, you see. So they don't believe in our Messiah, Mashiach. They believe that he's the Mashiach, you see. And the third thing is they don't say we have the Torah, which they call the Old Testament. They say that they have the Torah, which is the New Testament. Well, you notice what that is. You see? What that is, is where they have replaced three fundamental principles in Judaism, and they have dismissed it from us, and they have taken it over. That means that the basis of Christianity is Judaism. Because if you didn't have Judaism, there would be no such thing as Christianity. Because Christianity isn't like a religion that has independent ideas that have nothing to do with Judaism. It is solely based on Judaism. But it's based on the fact that it's based on, I should say, a not-Judaism. They have the Messiah, they have the Torah, and they are called Beit Israel. You see? So what's amazing is that Christianity is really uh, Judaism on its head. It's a reversal of Judaism. We say yes, they say no, you see? That's an amazing idea, because paganism has nothing to do with Judaism. Yet Christianity is the exact opposite of Judaism. Why? Because that's Esau. Esau didn't introduce a new religion. Esau is a deviation. Esau, the concept of Esau is an oppositional force. It's a deviation from Judaism. You see, it's an overthrow of Judaism. And that's really what Christianity is. If you really want to think of it in a profound way. So, as a result of that, this is why Judaism is so tied to Christianity. I mean, there are so many ideas and what they call legends and so on, uh, is from Judaism. But what Christianity did, which is interesting, is they combined Judaism with paganism. Because when Paul wanted to bring it to the nations of the world, and he's the major person that introduced a lot of the ideas, you see, then what Paul did is he wedded it to paganism. So if you think about it, Christianity is basically a no to Judaism. But it's more than that. It's a Jewish, it's paganism with a Jewish veneer, a Jewish, a Jewish uh, window, sh- uh, a window shop, you see. It's really what it is. 
And that's really what Esav is. Esav is not a religion on its own. Esav is an opposite of Judaism. Because that's really, like I said, what Esav is, you see. And that's its essence, you see. So therefore, that is why Esav is so tied to Judaism, you see. So what happened is this. If the Jews have sinas chinam, if you recall, do you remember what I said sinas chinam does in our relationship to Esav? It's a midah keneged midah. It's a measure for measure. That means God says the retribution to the Jews because you hate each other. And that's exactly what happened in the second base of Migdash. And the rabbis tell us it was sinas chinam. Directly. Expressedly. So God said that I will awaken Esau, right, and give him the opportunity to destroy Judaism. And that's exactly what happened. So all of a sudden, Esau that hates uh, uh, that hates Yaakov and the Jewish people, Esau seen in Yaakov, which Chazal tells that Esau hates Yaakov, they were aroused, right, and they destroyed the second place of Mikdash. Sinat Chinam. In other words, their sin has chinam that destroyed the base of Migdash, right, is a, a punishment. It's an exact opposite of, of what we did, which is our sin has chinam, to cry Israel. That's a very, very profound concept that the origin of Christian anti-Semitism, which is the real anti-Semitism, is sin has chinam of the Jews as a punishment. It's a very powerful concept. That's its origin. And it was demonstrated explicitly in the destruction of the second Pesemic Dush. Now, it's also very important is the Chofitz Chaim says, and also the famous commentary, the Marshal, says the same thing, that Sinas Chinam would not have the ability to destroy the temple, you see, even though it's a terrible sin. What it was, and that's what they want to bring out, is Russian horror. In other words, as I said, Russian horror is responsible for enormous amount of sinas chinam. That's the major vehicle how sinas chinam is created and disseminated. So they say that it was Russian horror doing sinas chinam that is what destroyed the temple. You see. That's a very important concept because it tells us that it's in the end it is sinas chinam that arouses or reawakens the hatred of Esau as Edom, as Christianity, to do what they did to the Jews, to destroy their temple. That's what does it. And the vehicle is the Russian horror itself. Now, to prove that, how does Christianity destroy the Jewish people? And I will tell you, because the Christians have authored one of the greatest uh, uh, slanders document ever written against the Jews. It is called the New Testament. The New Testament has statements about Judaism that are absolutely terrible. You know, if you, if you look at it and so on, what they say about the Jews, that they're terrible people, they're... they're uh, uh, Harlots, whatever, children of the devil, and so on, you know. That's a terrible Lashon horror. 
And that's what created the whole climate. The New Testament created the climate that the Jews are an inferior race. Therefore, God has, uh, you know, sent them into exile and, and so on, you know. And that's why they're guilty of exile and so on. Why? And this is what the New Testament says. So that has created an incredible climate of anti-Semitism. That is why. So again, there you are. So that's the meter connected meter, the measure for measure. You people choose, God says, and the judgment says this, and the ketrugim, the prosecutions, these guys are filled with sinas chinam. And therefore the punishment will be the, the uh, popularization or the canonization of a document which will spread throughout the entire world that has terrible slander against the Jews. And like I said, that document is responsible, really, in the end, for anti-Semitism. Because really, in the end, if you think about it, in the time of Rome, there was no such thing as anti-Semitism per se. They didn't hate Jews. Rome wasn't interested in hating. There were a lot of people that they thought were inferior, the Germanic barbarians, the Visigoths, and so on, you know. What they hated was they wanted to make everybody subject to Rome because they wanted tribute. Rome was interested in conquest. They, they thought everybody was inferior to them, you see. So real anti-Semitism isn't because you hate the Jew, right? Because uh, you want his money, you know. No, anti-Semitism is a theologically based hatred, you see, that I hate the Jew because of who they are, you see. And therefore, anti-Semitism is a true Christian product, which is very interesting. There are many nations that hate Jews, but it's not because of who they are. It's because of what he called, it could be because of jealousy, but it's not because inherently they hate the Jew uh, because of his religion. Therefore, anti-Semitism and Christian hatred is tied because Christian hatred and therefore it's anti-Semitism, which is truly religious based on religious grounds, you see, is the punishment that Jews have for their own sinas chinam, you see. It's an astounding concept because what this tells us is something very interesting that the Jews, if they wanted, could stop anti-Semitism. Yes, it's amazing. Because the whole reason why God allows people of the world, Christians, to hate Jews, and that's why we're seeing now, is because Jews hate Jews. So this is the punishment. And if you take a look today, it's unbelievable what goes on out there. You know, people in Israel, there's so many people that hate Jews hating Jews because of a different political party, right? Or because you have different minhagim, traditions, you see? It, 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 the amount of dislike that Jews have for each other is terrible. And because of, especially the political situation in Israel, people are always speaking Russian horror. And Jews speak Russian horror. That's what the Chovetz Chaim says. That's why we are still in exile. But what Russian horror does, which creates the Sinat Chinam, it creates the possibility that the goyim 
Christianity, which I will, you know, d- dwell on, so on, you know, that this is, you know, renewed every generation because of our own sinas chinam. So if the Jews practice Avis Yisrael, or Avas chinam, right, uh, then sinas, then sinas chinam, or anti-Semitism of Goyim, which is basically Western civilization, would disappear. Isn't that amazing? So it's the Jews that can eradicate anti-Semitism, not by talking to the Goyim, or having these committees, or these conventions, and so on, because they don't really get it. Anti-Semitism arises because of the Jews' anti-Semitism to themselves, and that's the punishment. Mida connected mida, measure for measure. And where do we see this classically, right? We see this from the destruction of the Second Temple. It's, it's not by random chance, right, that Christianity began to persecute the Jews at that time. Because Christianity is the form that Asaph took, you see. It's because this is the Mida Keneged Mida. This is the answer to our Lashon uh, Hara uh, and our Sinas Chinam. You see, and that's why. Very important concept, and so on. You see. Now, once we understand that, we can understand something very unusual. We can ask ourselves, how much have the Goyim Christians destroyed Jews? How much? And I want to show you something interesting, right? Where is the seat of Christianity, really? Because remember, what I'm saying, that Esau is Edom, Torah says that, Edom is Rome, the Gomorrah says that, but through the Etruscans, right? And Rome became a Christian. And there's a reason for that. Because since Esau is the main party or agent that punishes the Jews, Ravya Aved Soya, the older will persecute the younger, Therefore, it would have meant that Rome, since they are now Esau, right, would have had to remain as the greatest nation for 2,000 years because they would have to continue punishing the Jews. That's their, that would be their assignment when the Jews deserve it. But God doesn't want a nation to be on top for 2,000 years, which is the length of the Golas. So what God did is he changed the nation called Rome transform them into what? Into a religion. So Christianity is now the religion of Esau. That is Esau. Changed into a new figure called Christianity. So it's no longer Rome. But it's interesting that the name Rome still applied. You have the Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, and so on. So the name still applied. But the real force of, of Rome is became Christian in order to be able to persecute the Jews. And then we know, of course, that the way they persecuted them is Rome became a religion, Christianity. Christianity became Western civilization. Uh, so really, Western civilization is Christianity today, is Esau. And we are subject to the uh, vicissitudes of Rome, of Christianity. You see, that's what's happening. But I want to point out something and just show you what's something very interesting. Where is the seat of Christianity 
It's in Italy, in Rome. You see, that's where it is. But if you think about it, that's quite bizarre. You know why? Because Yeshu, their founder, he didn't live in Italy. He never went to Italy. What's have to do with Rome or Italy? Just because they became Christian doesn't mean that that's the seat of Christianity. Really, the seat of Christianity should be in Jerusalem, right? Or in Israel, the Galil or whatever, because that's where he lived. Why is it in Rome, if you think about that? Because like I said, Rome is the spiritual heir of Esau. And because it took over Esau's job, right? It therefore Rome took over, therefore Christianity, the seat of Christianity, is now in Rome or Italy. You see, that's where it is. That's where it belongs. You know, I remember that uh, I was once in Italy and I was in the Vatican. And the Vatican has some very interesting museums. See? So I remember I walked into the museum and the place was filled with Roman statues. Yeah. I, I, you know, I said to myself, what am I, what am I doing in, what does it have to do with Christianity? It's all Roman statues, you see. And then, of course, we, I knew the answer. Because Rome became Christianity. Christianity is an incarnate of Rome. And therefore, the Vatican, which is the seat of Christianity, right, would have a total connection to Rome. That's why. In fact, if you take a look at the word Vatican, and you spell it in Hebrew, Vatican, spell it out in Hebrew, then, and you jumble the letters, it spells out Tikkun. Right. The word Vatican, if you jumble the letters, Vatican, right, it actually spells out the word Tikkun. Because the whole purpose of Rome or Christianity is to bring a Tikkun to the Jews when they need a Tikkun through punishment. So the word itself represents that, you see. And that's a very important idea. Now, like I said before, uh, to what extent have they destroyed the Jews? And I'm going to tell you a very fascinating statistic. Okay? Um, Historians estimate that 2,000 years ago, which is the beginning of, of course, Christianity and and, uh, and so on, and basically this was destroyed, historians estimate that there were approximately 10 million Jews that lived at that time. Now, fine. That's 2,000 years ago. How many Chinese were there? So they estimate that there were 25 million Chinese. That's how many Chinese there were at that time. How many Chinese are there today, which is basically 2,000 years later? Well, we know is approximately 1.4 billion Chinese. Well, we can understand, because if a nation multiplies, you know, undisturbed, so to speak, for 2,000 years, it'll go from 25 million to 1.4 billion people, right? So how much is that, multi- how much is that multiplied by? Well, if it starts out at 25, 2,000 years ago, million, 2,000 years ago, and now it's 1.4, right? So that's 40, that's almost 60 times the amount that it was. From 25 million to 1.4 billion. 
So let's assume it took about 2,000 years for them to propagate, reproduce, to produce 1.4 billion people. Okay, so that's a factor of almost 60. But wait a minute. How many Jews are today? Well, it started off at 2,000 years ago at 10 million. But wait a minute. It doesn't make sense. There's only 15 million Jews in the world. How's that possible? Because if the formula is correct, right, it should be multiplied at least 60 times, times 10. So 10 million times, let's say 60 times, is 600 million people. Well, how come there's no 600 million Jews? Could you imagine how many Jews that is? Yeah, it makes sense. Because the Jews have been multiplying, right, for 2,000 years. So if you start off at 10 and you put a factor, a multiplier, of let's say about 50 or 60, there should be at least one 500 million Jews in the world, just like there are 25 million Chinese, and now there's 1.4 billion. But that doesn't make sense. 15 million Jews is all that there is after reproducing for 2,000 years? doesn't make sense. We're all the Jews, right? That means there's at least, right, 400, what, and 80 or 85 million Jews missing. And not only that, we should be much more than that because we started as a nation, right, at the time of Avram Avinu. And Avram Avinu was 1,800 years before that, right? So we really now should have almost... One billion Jewish people. You imagine? Just based on normal population growth. So how is it possible that the Jews, which are basically the oldest nation of antiquity, right, has only 15 million people and not, you know, a, a, a billion Jews? And the answer is because that's what Christian, uh, the Christianity has done. Because of the pogroms, the expulsions, right, the inquisitions, and so on, all of these have uh, uh, have de- decimated the Jewish people. You see the Holocaust. So over thousands of years, every couple of years there would be a tremendous wipeout campaign. Millions of Jews would die over the years, and after a while, after two thousand years. There's only 15 million Jews left? That's incredible. You are looking at the repercussions of anti-Semitism. Yes. But what, what, how does it work? Because what God doesn't want to wait till the end and, and, and then bring death to so many Jews because of sinaschinam. So what he does is like it's a bloodletting incrementally. So every couple of years, there's some type of a wave of murderous anti-Semitism that kills Jews. So if you add them up over the years, for instance, in 14, not 14, I should say, uh, in 1648, I think, you had the Khmelnikian massacres, you see. And the Khmelnikian massacre in its time was as great as the Holocaust now. One-third or maybe one-half of European Jewry died at the hands of Khmelnyky. So over the decades and centuries, 
hundreds of thousands of Jews died. And after a while, it totals, mil- it totals millions of Jews. So what God does is he applies it incrementally because he doesn't want to do it one time. So in order to satisfy justice, he does it incrementally. But the main idea is who is doing this? And the answer is, basically, it's Christianity. We cannot even number the amount of Jewish neshamas, souls, that have been murdered, killed. For what? You know, because they're not Christian? We don't even understand the judgment that will be passed to the Goyim. Once judgment has arrived, whatever you want to call it, the last day of judgment, the final judgment, whatever, it doesn't make a difference. But once judgment is allowed to pursue its total goal, which is complete satisfaction of justice, you will not be able to believe the destruction that will be visited on mankind, especially Christianity, because apparently they have done the major work of destroying the Jews. Like I just showed you, I mean, this concept is indisputable. 15 million Jews after so many years. Can you imagine that? And it should be really, since Avraham Avinu, at least a billion Jews. Unbelievable, isn't it? But in any case, this is a relationship uh, or the assignment of, in that sense, of Esau and uh, the concept of Tikkun uh, that they've been doing for, what, thousands of years and so on, you see. And that's what propagates anti-Semitism. It is the sinas chinam, the anti-Semitism of one Jew to another, although that's not the proper term. It's really called baseless hatred. <coughs> that, re- that uh, invokes <clears throat> the anti-Semitism uh, of, of uh, Christianity. And that's what's happening today, you see. But remember also that I had mentioned this, uh, you know, well, a week ago, two weeks ago, that Esau also has a positive uh, mission, and that is to change the world, to assist in bringing the Tikkun in a positive sense, you see. And I, I, I mentioned that paganism has several features to it. And Christianity changed it all. One of them is that they believe in many gods. Paganism, polytheism. And Christianity has introduced the concept that there are, well, they call it one god, three parts, whatever. But relatively speaking, it's nowhere near what the polytheism of Greece and Rome used to be. And so on, all the Greek deities and so on. So they have created what's called relative monotheism, which is tremendously Jewish-like. Second thing, which they have reversed paganism, is paganism, right, uh, does not believe in a Messiah. They don't believe in an individual that comes and changes the world and introduces good. But Christianity does preach that. They believe that their founder will come back and change the world a messianic figure, and so on. So that's a second uh, new theological concept that they introduced, which again is based on Judaism. The third idea is that there will be a messianic era, that the world does not end in evil. The world will end in a tremendous spiritual awakening, which is true. 
Again, it's from Judaism, but they're the ones that have spread it throughout the world. And then the fourth idea, which is very important, paganism does not believe in a hereafter. They don't believe in after, that there's a life after death, that there's an Elam Habo. No. They say a guy dies, he's dead. It's over with. You know, and you have to try to struggle and live in the time that you're here. There's no hope for resurrection. There's no concept of a resurrection. Whereas Christianity, of course, believes in a hereafter, which is supposed to be glorious and so on. Again, it's a Jewish concept. So it is, pag- it is Christianity that has introduced these distinctly Jewish ideas. They have been the agent or the vehicle that has removed paganism from the world's thinking. I mean, there's still nations that are paganistic, but by and large, uh, what is there, like two and a half billion Christians and so on, you know, and it has filtered even into Islam, the whole concept of a Messiah, a hereafter, whatever they envision that hereafter to be. But so there's no question that Christianity, in their merit, uh, you know, has removed paganism as a theological concept and they have introduced a tremendous amount of Jewish ideas you see which is very important because when you believe in a hereafter right then you believe also that there's repercussions to your deeds if you don't believe in a hereafter why be good just do what you want to do while you're alive so there's no question that they've introduced these ideas which has been of enormous benefit and they have brought the nations closer to believing in God. No question about that. So, I mean, they, so this does outweigh a great deal of the evil that they've done. Of course, God will, you know, introduce whatever he does to balance everything out. So, one side is Rav Ya'avoyt, so it all goes back to that person. The older will, will do what? Will assist the younger. So, Esav does assist Yaakov by introducing clear Judaic ideas, right? They clearly do that. And then the same Pasuk, Rav Ya'aved Soya, the older will persecute the younger, is exactly what Esav has done. I mean, they've left, Jew- they left Jewish people, 15 million people instead of a billion, you see? So we now see a beautiful understanding of history, how the world has exactly transpired based on one Pasuk, how much you could see the world, what, what has transpired. It's a very important concept. And also what has come out of this year is a very important concept of the real idea of anti-Semitism is based on Jewish hatred that automatically brings into it measure for measure, you see, anti-Semitism from Christians and, of course, anti-Semitism from the New Testament. It's all based on uh, what the Jews have done because of a retribution of justice and so on. So one of the important ideas is that if Jews want to get rid of anti-Semitism, you must spread Shemir Saloshan. The Jews must stop speaking Lashon Hara. Then automatically, the hatred of Goyim to Jews Christians and Jews will also cease. And that's one of the things, of course, that holds up. So I've introduced many new concepts here. 
and how all of this conforms beautifully with the history of the last 4,000 years, you see. So what I'm trying to show is that the Chumash is not a history book that talks about events that took place, right, 3,300 years ago, 4,000 years ago, that the Torah describes events, not only the event itself, the actual principles of what governs history, the inner depth of historical movement, you see, the Torah has it there. And it's a matter of looking at it, and you actually can see how history beautifully conforms to the principles laid down in the Torah. Any questions? So now, even in our days, every time we see a rise in anti-Semitism, like yeah. even today, on um, I don't know if you probably didn't even hear, but on ABC, on a on the, a major network, there's yeah. a, a morning show where I don't know if you ever heard of the actress Whoopi Goldberg, but she's some yeah. actor, actress, um, and she was saying how um, the Holocaust. Uh, wasn't about race, and it wasn't about racism. It was just about two groups of white people fighting, and she's black. Um, but, and everyone's like all talking about now how, how just like the rise of anti-Semitism, that now it's even like in our face on the, you know, a regular TV show and, uh, you know, a news channel. And so when we see that, automatically... Uh, we should think that A, it's our doing, and B, we could stop it through Lashon Hara, stop speaking Lashon Hara. I want to tell you something. Whoever, whoever Whoopi Goldberg is, and I have no idea, and so on, mm. you know, I want to tell you something. This woman is a complete ignoramus. All she has to do is read Mein Kampf. Hitler wrote a book describing what his beliefs were and that he intends to implement it if he ever can get his act together, which is exactly what he did, right? I don't, it, it, it's astounding to hear somebody make comments which displays openly their ignorance of history. But that is such a foolish comment when Hitler, who did it, actually wrote why he did it. And he says, because the Jews are the conscience of mankind, they are the scourge of mankind, they have made us into weaklings, into wimps. They must be destroyed. I mean, it's just—it's beyond belief how stupid and ignorant people can be, you know. So she—it's she's not even—she's not even correct. I mean, it's just beyond belief how could she make that statement? But it's not even true. Everybody knows what anti-Semitism. It's not white so white because why is it basically directed? At the Jewish people, <clears throat> you know, everybody knows that anti-Semitism is unique. It's different than one guy hating another guy uh, because of something he did, right? They hate Jews because there's something about Jews that brings out hatred because it makes no sense. It's not rational. If you examine anti-Semitism, you know, and where it occurs and when, it doesn't make sense. And so on, <clears throat> you know. Um, like it reminds me of in, 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 during World War Two, 
So the J- Japanese were allies of the of the uh, Nazis, you know. So they didn't understand because they they're Asians, the Far East. They didn't understand why they why is Hitler killing the Jews? They don't know. <clears throat> so anyway, so one of the people, the Japanese, uh, uh, whoever it was, the prime minister, or whatever. So he called the Amshin of a Rebbe to ask him because the Jews, you remember, they went to Kyoto, Japan. And they were there in Shanghai and so on, which was controlled by the Japanese. But in any case, uh, so he, uh, he called the, uh, the Amshin of a Rebbe, right? And he asked him, why is Hitler killing the Jews? He doesn't know why. Like, well, what they do? <clears throat> you know, what could they have possibly done to merit an utter destruction? So the Amshin of a Rebbe realized that his answer is incredibly significant. Because he didn't want the Japanese to do the same thing as their allies, the Nazis. So he realized what, uh, what the significance of his answer. Fortunately for us, God was with him, with the Amshinova. And he said, the Amshinova said to the Japanese, I'm not sure if it was the emperor or whoever it was, the prime minister or whatever. So he said to him, the reason why they want to kill Jews is because the Nazis hate Orientals. And we know the Jews are Orientals because they're Middle East, right? But the Japanese are also Orientals. It was a brilliant answer. In other words, it's not just us that hate. They hate you guys too. The reason why they're your allies is because you, they need you to take over the world or whatever. You see? So again, the Japanese themselves didn't understand. What's this all about, this Jew hatred? Like, what do they do that you hate them so much? So everybody knows anti-Semitism is unique because when you examine the historical events, it's irrational. It doesn't make sense, you know. There's some type of inborn, inherent hatred. And we know what that is, you know. It says, The inherent hatred of a Jew, right, can be viewed in different ways. But one of the fundamental ways is that's the price that we pay for the neshama that God gave us. Now, when a person talks to a Jew, inherently his, his neshama, whatever soul the guy possesses, feels the kedusha of the Jew, even if the Jew is not religious. This is the problem. We walk around with a neshama, the Ramchal says this, the Jew has a neshama, <clears throat> which is nowhere near compared to anything else. This is what God did in order that the Jews should be able to do the tikkun. So God invested in the Jew, right, an eshama, a soul that is extraordinary, which is connected to all the five ilomas. And therefore, when the Jew does a deed, a mitzvah, he affects all five dimensions. That neshama is awesome. You see, that's called the pintaliyid, if you want to use the Yiddish expression. And when you talk to a Jew, there's something about in you, a guy automatically feels there's something different about this person. Even though he doesn't know what it is, the Jew himself barely understands what it is. But we call it the pintaliyid. We call it the spark or the Jewish point, whatever, however you want to translate it and so on. That is the real cause of anti-Semitism. Because what it does is a person begins to feel 
there's a certain superiority of the Jew. He doesn't know why. And that begins to come across as tremendous jealousy, especially if the Jews are successful. And they are. The Jews have been the mainstay of so many civilizations, you see, and there's tremendous amount of jealousy. But the origin of that jealousy is this distinct difference between the spiritual soul of the Jew and the Goy. Now, the Goy doesn't have to be jealous, right? He himself, if he becomes a Noachide, even if he doesn't become Jewish, a Noachide is on a much greater spiritual level than a Goy, than a regular non-Jew. Because he's observing, well, if you want to call him a Gertesh or whatever, and they mentioned often in the Chumash, the Gertesh and so on. So that's what a Norkite is, you see. He is on a much higher level, spiritually, than a regular non-Jew. But if somebody wants to become Jewish, the door's open. He, could, he could also become Jew, and when a guy becomes a Jew, he gets the actual neshama, or the, I should say the level of neshama, as a Jew. That's a tremendous gift that God gave to Goyim, that even if you're not born with that neshama, you can get you can get it by becoming Jewish. You see, so really the door is open. But even if you don't want to become Jewish, merely by becoming a Norkite, you have now elevated yourself. You know, qualitatively, you see, to a much higher level, and so on. But this is the basic understanding the actual origin of anti-Semitism or, 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 or the, of the jealousy that Goyim have, you see. But God uses that as punishment for the Jews. We are the ones who initiate anti-Semitism from the Goyim because of our sins. Because it's a midah connected midah. You want to hate Jews? I'll show you what it means to hate a Jew. Guess what? I will invoke the hatred of Esau to you and therefore he will destroy all of you. He doesn't care which Jew he's killing. You think Hitler cared which Jew? He would go after you even if you had a mother who was Jewish four generations earlier. It didn't bother him, you see. But, uh, so this is important, you see. So, um, uh, so it's not that the origin of anti-Semitism by Christian. You see, the origin is that they are invoked to be Hate, hate, hate the Jew because of the punishment that the Jew himself deserved. And like I say, the historical proof of this is the destruction of the Second Temple, which was because of Sinatrinam, and therefore they destroyed the Second Temple. You see? I have a question. When yeah. a Jewish soul... Um, what was that? When a, when a Jew uh, passes away... Where does their soul go? In which in which olam does it fall in, or does it not go into olam? Like where does it where does it hang? Like where does it go? Well, the first thing it does is goes to judgment. What has right. to happen? Because remember, every neshama, every person who's Jewish, must complete his mission. So that may either be that you have to come back as somebody else, whatever, and complete your mission. You see. Now, if it's done its tikkun, if everything has been absolved and forgiven and you've done your tikkun, then you go to Gan Eden. 
and you wait. You wait for Tchir Samesim, resurrection of the dead, and you come back with everybody else. You see? That's where it goes. Now, where, or where is Ganeden? It's probably in Oilem Yitzira. Uh, that's where it is. <clears throat> Oilem Yitzira is the second world, so Ganeden or Elyon is, is there. You know? But uh, that, that's so, therefore, a determination is, must be made what to do. Because you, you must finish your mission. There's no such thing as not finishing your mission. Or you can, you, if you don't deserve to come, you don't, if, if you did your mission, but you have a lot of sins, whatever, so you don't come back, you go to Gehenna, which is a spiritual place of atonement. Since you don't have to come back here and have a whole lifetime, because a lot, most of your tikkun has been done, but you still have a lot of baggage that you've got to clean up, so then you go to Gehenna. There are different forms, which the Zohar talks about, of spiritual uh, atonement. So a decision is made, you know. And Gehenna, hopefully, what? Is that is and Gehenna is that in the Olama as well, or is that below it? No, Gehenna is below it, below everything, because it's really the world of the Sitrachra. It's the world of the Sutton. You see, and whatever's meted out there, whatever punishment has to happen, I once gave a whole shear about what Gehenna is what the punishment is. Uh, it's not what people think, you know, which is a mistake. Uh, but in any case, um, you know, so, but it's, it's below everything. You see. Hmm? I have to look up that class. Yeah, I gave it quite a while ago, a couple of years ago. If you can find it, it's great here. What, what really happens in Gehenna? You know. Okay. Anything else? So is there anything specific for um, Rosh Chodesh Adar that we should do? Or anything that you, like, anything, anything that we should know about? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, this year I've talked a lot about Sinas Chinam and Rosh And we realize how important it is and how much history is determined by what we say and how we feel about Jews. <clears throat> you know, look, Adar is very special because it is the mazel of Yosef. You know, Adar is the mazel of Yosef, um, and that's why it's, it's which is really Mashiach ben Yosef. And we know Yosef, one of the sins that he did was he spoke lush and horror about his brothers, you see, and therefore he was punished, <clears throat> you know, by uh, condemning his brothers. You know, and therefore he was condemned, and so on. So therefore, I think what Adar would be a great, a great uh, time to focus on Shmuel Saloshan. You know. Thank you, Rabbi. Okay, great seeing you again, being back, and we will continue. <clears throat> Thank the you. Important thing, the important thing I want to just mention. The Torah is not a document or a book about historical events. If you, if you understand that, you absorb the essential message. The Torah lays down, even though it describes historical events, but it lays down the history, the principles of what moves history, 
What's it based on? You see, which I've shown you. Look at look 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 how much stuff is based on Rav Yavoitzoyer. Would you believe three words have so much incredible meaning and conform so beautifully to history as we've seen it for the last two thousand years? You see. Of course, the main idea is to be able to see it and to get into that. But that's what you're looking at. You're looking at the, to the guidebook, to the profound dynamics of history. That's really what it is.